hi, you're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney, and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. I'd like to welcome our guest comedian and actor based out of L.A., Seth Shapiro. Seth has performed in comedy clubs all over the country. Originally hailing from Chicago. What up, Chicago? Seth has an extensive background in sketch and improvisational... I swear I've done this before. Sketch and improvisational comedy, having studied and performed at the Second City and the Groundlings. He currently lives in SoCal with his wife and one-year-old son, along with a pit bull and a cat who are constantly competing to be the most obese animals in the house. I better know Seth from meeting him right now in this moment with y'all we also tried to schedule this interview since june of this year and we both thought we ghosted one another it was an entirely it's it's such a symbol for my whole dating life and ever ever trying to talk to men except the stakes were way higher because it was for the show so i'm so glad this finally happened so seth tell us what got you into comedy what's your comedy style do you like la tell us all the things oh man let's see uh (laughs) do i like la pretty much yeah um you know i do a lot of uh touring for comedy and and I have to say, like the one, the one through line when touring is that people are really nice in other towns. But the other through line is, I think they have to be because there's nothing else happening in that town. So it's like, <laughs> it's like I guess they must feel like they're all in this together. So I always do appreciate coming back. I ne- I I never appreciate LA more than when I come back to LA from the road. Um, I do. I love that there's so much to do here. I love like I'm definitely a big foodie, and so there. And it's, I mean, just the the melting pot of cuisine out here is. I think it, it might be just really unprecedented uh, in the world. Like LA's usually ranked somewhere with the food just overall, but as far as variety, I think it's got to be number one and just things to do out here. I love it. Love the weather. Uh, yeah, it is. It's really nice. Uh, let's see. What got me into comedy? Uh, well, uh, I moved out here 19 years ago um, from, uh, I graduated from University of Illinois. I studied acting. I moved out here with a buddy of mine who is actually probably a bit more famous than I am. Uh, his name is Jonathan Kite. Uh, he was Oleg on Two Broke Girls. Uh, he was most recently on on uh, the sitcom with Jamie Foxx last year that was on Netflix. Um, and actually, and and he's my best friend. He was my best man at my wedding. And, and so we moved out here together 19 years ago. We were roommates for a few years. And then uh, I wanted to, st- we moved out to the Valley. I wanted to stay there uh, for a couple more years in Studio City because it was really nice. And he wanted to kind of be more about it in Hollywood. Uh, but like, we're, and then, so, you know, we split up in that fashion, but we're still like absolute best friends. And I actually open for him on the road a lot now too. Yeah. I'm, I'm his official feature, uh, which is really fun getting to go on the road with my best buddy and, you know, writing comedy and performing together. And so, yeah, we were always like, we always were, were cast as like the two comedic guys. Cause I was like, I was always the short stocky guy and he's like a tall skinny guy. Um, and so we had planned to come out to LA, like probably probably by the end of our freshman year that was the plan uh moved out here with a third friend actually and so i'd i'd been mostly doing acting that's why i came to la but i'd always loved stand up always been a big fan of it and i had done it when i was uh uh i did a bit of it in college a little bit of it um but then i kind of stayed away from it for a long time out here i did a lot of sketch i did a lot of improv including uh i don't know probably our our biggest claim to fame out here was uh, that we formed a group called uh, L. Ron Jeremy that <laughs> performed at um, a competitive improv show that they used to have it at I.O. West uh-huh. called The Cage Match. I've done The Cage Match. And yeah. at the time, we we actually ended up setting the, the all-time record. We won for 52 straight weeks and then retired undefeated after a year. Holy uh, shit. Yeah, so that was really fun. There were six of us in the group. Uh, and then, like, uh, probably a couple years after that, back in 2014, I think it was 2014, a friend of mine uh, who uh, he worked at the comedy store and we were hanging out there one night and he was like, Hey man, you're going to be, I think he always thought that I was a stand up. Like, I don't think he realized that I really just did sketch and improv when it came to comedy. And he's like, Hey man, you're going to get up and, uh, tonight or something. I'm like, what? No, I didn't. What are you talking about? He's like, look, man, you know, you should, you should come. Why don't you come on Monday when the open mic is and I'll get you on stage. And I, at the comedy store and I was like, Oh, that, cause it's supposed to be random, right? The potluck. And I was like, no, man, that's that's not fair. He's like, dude, the whole thing's rigged anyway. Like, all of we it. always yeah, we always decide who goes up. So I spent all weekend prepping like, you know, three minutes, and then Monday rolls around, and that Monday is the day that Robin Williams committed suicide. 
And and so like I was like so like revved up to do stand up and like that's his home club too, you know? And um I don't know, I was just like, Oh, I can't start my stand up comedy career today and my wife gave me this like you know, rousing speech. She's like, "No, the world needs to laugh today. You need to go." Like assuming that I was like going to actually do Crush. well at this <laughs> at this open mic at comedy store. And I was like, "Yeah, the world needs to laugh. That's right." So I I stuck with it, and I I that was my first night of stand up was the day Robin Williams night, and it was a weird vibe that night at the comedy store, as you can imagine. It was just a really really weird vibe. But um, anyway, I've I I love it and. Uh, it kind of started taking off somewhat quickly and my, my standup or my acting career had been a little stagnant lately. So I was like, you know what, let's maybe just kind of go down this path and, and see if there's something here. And so that was eight years ago. Yeah. Wow. We're yeah. going to have to have you back on because we've had a couple comics on who have had the potluck experience, um, uh-huh. from, from hell and have talked about <laughs> just, it was the worst. And so you're, you having like a somewhat positive experience feels like you were sort of meant to be on that trajectory of yeah, like, I mean, I mean, open mics are, you know, Brutal. They, they, they are what they are. You can't, whenever I have a friend who like does a stand up comedy class and they have a final performance and, and it goes great because everyone there is you know, friends, you. friends and family yeah. and they're all supportive and they're like, oh, I want to try doing stand up. Can I come with you to open mics? And I always say to them like, yes, but you must lower your bar of expectations yeah. below the ground. And then they come and get absolutely no laughs and no mm-hmm. one's watching or paying attention to them. And, and then it kind of scares them off stand up. But that's the thing. Like you just, you're not there to like get laughs and crush. It's an open mic. It's, it's just a gym. So, okay. So would you, how, how do you gauge, I guess, because the open mic is what formulates the joke in mm-hmm. theory or mm-hmm. doing the reps. How do you gauge what actually works then? By doing it a gazillion times in front of a, a gazillion different types of crowds. Um, I mean, for me, like I'm, I'm trying to get on as, do as many booked shows as I can around yeah. town, um, to, to minimize the number of mics that I have to go to. Uh, sure. and so, uh, because you guess you do, you get so much more feedback when you're in front of people that are actually paying attention and want to be there. Thousand percent. Um, yeah, yeah. And so I know I, I don't want to hyper focus on this, but I do want to know. So you so acting was what you came out here to do. Mm-hmm. Where can people see you then? Do you have like old clips of things up or are there other shows we can see you on or how do we there? No, not too much. I mean, it, when it was all said and done, I booked a, a few small projects. I, I did a handful of commercials that maybe they're out there in the ether. OK. Yeah. yeah so, I, so comedy is the lane that you are kind of exclusively in now. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, the ultimate goal uh, would be to uh, try to be able to craft some kind of career that I can mainly st- stick around in L.A. to do so that I can spend as much time with my wife and kid as possible. Uh, so I've been starting to do more writing, uh, especially because uh, it's it's interesting. A lot of friends have pointed out to me that they think that I'm a, a writer's comic more than anything, uh, and that, um, and I've always been a writer. I did a ton of writing as a kid, and so that's that's a lane that that people have always suggested to me, and I've never really taken it seriously before. But now maybe the time. What does a writer's comic mean for the lay people that don't um, speak the language? I'm trying to think of like maybe good examples. Of, well, I guess it, it when when the when the comedy is coming more from the from the humor within the material instead of the performance. That's fair. Um, I'd like to think that this wasn't my friend's passive aggressive way of telling me I'm not a good performer. <laughs> like, yeah, you're more a writer. Yeah, it's like it's like you have a face, for, face radio. for radio. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I think that my my stand up tends to be a little heady and and weird and and mm. goofy. And um, I've done because I think I've done a lot of sketch and improv in my life. That I think a lot of my a lot of the material that I write comes from that place of of interesting funny concepts. Okay. Um, and fans of the show, uh, former guest of the show, Chris Regan is a writer's comic. So that was what he was told, uh, sort of early on in his career too. And now he's an Emmy winning writer for family guy. So, you you know, there is a path that leads to success that way. So it's not all bad. Okay. Well, because we have limited time, I want to get to the goods. So real quick though, what is your comedy style? If people are listening to you, are you storytelling? Are you doing observational? Is it a hybrid or do you not necessarily have one style? I, yeah, I kind of do all of it. All of it. I do storytelling. I, I do characters. I have, I have one-liners. Great. Um, I like to do bits where I kind of mess with the crowd. 
You do. So you do crowd work. Yeah. Well, that's fun. Okay. At the end, we'll take, uh, you can tell everybody your socials and where you're going to perform and how they can see you, especially because you're touring. So if they're all over the country, that's great. Okay, folks, we hope you enjoyed your apps. We're going to go on to the entrees after a quick break. We are back and now it's time for the entrees. Okay. So Seth, I know you're a longstanding fan of the show, so you already know all of this, but I'm just telling you for your edification. This is the question bit. So I always call it the speed round of questions, but it's not. Um, Feel free to tell all the stories because this is the part that everyone loves. And Uh I did not explain where uh, your job for a long time that I want to hear all about because I have a thousand questions, but we're going to start at the top. What was your first job ever where the government was taking taxes out of your money? So not like a paper route. I mean, you could say that, but like, did you have a paycheck job as your first Uh, job? Let's see. When I was, I think, 16 years old, I got uh, in Chicago, I got a job at some local uh, doctor's office uh, just doing paperwork. Did you have to deal with client or with uh, patients? No, no. It was really just like a lot of filing, that kind of stuff. Okay. What was your first customer service job? First customer service job would be the, um, gosh, probably that, that would have been when I was 20 years old. I worked at Little Caesars for a month. <laughs> yeah. I, I went to go stay in Vegas, uh, with my dad for the summer. That's actually originally where I'm from before Chicago. I was born in Vegas. Oh, okay. And my dad still lives there. Um, so I spent, I was spending the summer with him. I needed a job, got a job at Little Caesars. And I was also there because Second City um, had just opened a branch there. And so I wanted to take classes there as well. So did you take classes in Second City Vegas? I did, yeah. I didn't even know they had a school there. I knew they had a theater, but I didn't know they had a school. I, and I think now they... They don't have anything now, now, now they don't have anything. Mm-hmm. Now it's, it's, it's yeah. done. But yeah, that's where uh, yeah Jason Sudeikis was there. Uh, Get out! Yeah. Do you know Kevin McGeehan or Ithamar Enriquez? They did stuff in Vegas. No. Okay. No. Um, we don't have to do your Rolodex. Sorry. Right. Yeah, okay, so okay. so Little Caesars for a month so, in Little Vegas. Little Caesars for a month in Vegas, and 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 I was taking Second City classes, okay. and there was this one thing at at night that I was wanting to go to, and um, but I had a um, I was scheduled to work, and so I I went to the boss, and I was like, hey, I need to get off this night, and the boss is like, sorry, you're scheduled for it, I, you can't get off for it, and I was so green that. I was just like, oh, I guess I, I guess, well, I, I got to quit then. I, I quit then because I have to go to this thing. And he was like, you're, you're quitting right now? And I was like, well, yeah. I mean, at the end of the shift today. And he's like, oh, okay, then you're fired. And I was like, no, 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 I quit. He goes, no, you're fired because you have to put in two weeks notice, which was like at 20 years old, it was the first time I'd ever heard that. So yeah. I'm like, oh, shoot. Okay. I guess I'm fired. But amazingly, like a week later, I ended up getting a job at the What's it called? Grand Slam Canyon, uh, the Adventure Dome, which is the um, um, the pink dome indoor amusement park that's connected to Circus Circus. Oh, awesome. Yeah, these people that worked at Second City, um, they offered me this job for like 20 bucks an hour, which was like a million dollars an hour when you're 20, um, doing carnival barking at this virtual interactive, virtual reality experience where people are like sitting there with a helmet on and it was like a pirate adventure that they're watching inside and there's an actor in a booth behind them that um, has like a camera on them and they're sort of dressed like a pirate and they're narrating this adventure and getting the audience to do ridiculous things. And so I was a carnival barker just to there to help sell tickets out front and try to get people to do it. But the real advertisement was watching these people in the seats, you know, pretending to sword fight and and drink drink rum and and do all sorts of things that the pirate actor behind the scenes was just telling them to do because they know as people walk by, they're going to be like, what are these people doing? This looks like a lot of fun. They must be really in it. It must be like the Matrix, like they're within a virtual world. And then they stick a helmet on and it's, you know, year 2001 era virtual reality special effects. And wow. so so every group was just there to try to dupe the next group into doing this attraction. That's awesome. So I was the carnival barker. And then after a few weeks, I moved my way up to being the pirate. Oh, get out. Yeah. So. After a few weeks. Yeah. Wow. I know. Right? Damn. Okay. So you did, how long were you doing? So you were doing that simultaneously whilst taking classes at Second City. Yeah. So how long were you able to do that? That was just for the summer. Just the summer. Yeah. And then you went back to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did mm-hmm. you get a customer service job in Chicago after that? Uh, no, I had a couple more years of college and then okay. and then moved out to LA. Uh, and then actually for a while in LA, my main you know, it's it's always weird to call this my occupation, but one of the main ways that I made extra money was I played poker. 
Get out. The bills. Yeah, I still do that a little bit to supplement my income. But um, but that was kind of my main thing for a while. And I always sort of considered that. I was like, well, I'm doing this so that I don't have to get a serving job and I can, and it freed me up to, um, you know, freed me up to do my acting and, and everything and take classes and do everything else. I did have another job when I first moved to LA for about a year where I actually worked at a casino in LA at this really odd job that like, I don't even want to get bogged in the details, but essentially casinos in LA work differently than in other areas where the house can't play against the players. So they can, they just, they provide the game kind of like in poker where like they provide the dealer, but they're, but they're not playing against the players. They just take a piece of the pot and that's how they get paid. But for a long time, players were wanting to have Vegas style games like blackjack where the house does play against them. So they found a way to create a game where players take turns being the dealer and the casino has a dealer work, but they actually just take a dollar per person as a service fee, and it's like risk-free. So they're just making an absolute ton of money every hand. Um, but I worked for a third-party company that sort of made sure that all the bets were paid off if I know it's really weird. I don't even want to get into it. Your face says it all right yeah, now. I'm, I'm, it's, well, I'm it's trying to accurate. figure it. Okay. Yeah, so it's so, a very appropriate face for <laughs> what I'm describing right were now. Were you the dealer then in that? I was not the dealer. I worked for another company that essentially represented like a very rich player that would sit at the table and make sure that all of the players who were the players at the moment got paid if they won. So like, so the players would take turns being the quote unquote, the bank and banking against the rest of the table. But if they didn't have enough money to put up to cover all of the players bets, we kind of, we covered the the, the action behind it. So if you cover the action behind it, does that mean you take a bigger piece of the pot once that hand is over? Um, well, it means essentially that we're getting to act as if we're the house all day long because sure. the game itself, there's an edge for whoever the house is. So and then, and then we would get but we would get an hourly wage to help run the game. OK. Yeah. And so I have to go back, though. So you in order to because a former guest of the show <laughs> i can't tell if this is interesting at all no it's like, fascinating really i'm I, no because a former guest of the show john williams supplemented his income partially out here with with poker uh -huh. and i thought i was like there's no way anyone else does that but this is fascinating to me that this was a thing so when you got here were you mm -hmm. like i know i'm good enough at because poker is a skill mm -hmm. so you know you're thinking i'm good enough at this and i don't want to become a server so i want a job where i decide my hours so you yeah, just roll up to I a casino not, uh, i was not yet a winning player uh, that was at the time where i was like cutting my teeth at the cash games here in la at the casinos here and also playing a lot online and then after working this job for a year um, I was starting to make more playing poker just as a hobby than I was at this job. And the job was kind of killing me because it was, I was working the graveyard shift, which originally when I took the job, I'm like, oh, this will be great. Yeah. I'll have my days to audition, but it really just kind of turned me into a, a living zombie. zombie. Yep. That's happened. Yeah. Uh, I think I put on like 40 pounds in that yep. year. And Isn't it, it so awful. weird? I put on so much weight when I worked at a comedy club, like yeah. being up until five in the morning and like rolling out of bed at 1 PM, it does something no, to and, you. And like one of the perks of the job is that they, they give us a, a meal that we can eat sometime during our shift. So I was essentially eating one humongous meal in the middle of at, the night at 1 a.m. every day. Yeah. And then just sitting there at a table for eight hours. It was, yeah, not very healthy. So, so you do, so you, you, so you're through this job, you're mm -hmm. observing that you're getting better at poker just because yeah. you're watching people play it or you're representing well, a business I'm, and you're well, playing I'm too. playing and yeah, I'm playing okay. a lot outside of the job because I was, I was running games like blackjack and pie gal. Oh, but then, okay, okay. But then when I was done, done with my shift, I would go play poker there or I would go home and I'd play online. Okay, so you, yeah. so you sign up for that. How long are you doing that where you're doing Graveyard? Well, that was a year? That was a little over a year, like a year and a few months. Were you then simultaneously auditioning? Uh-huh, yeah, I was how auditioning. You, how? I don't know. Um, but I mean, I got really lucky. I I, um, I took a class at the Groundlings when I first came to LA, and through that, I ended up getting an agent. And so uh, I started auditioning pretty quickly when I came out here and, and was booking the occasional thing. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it was great. It was really great. Okay, so you go from so you do that for a little bit over a year, mm -hmm. and then what was how well how many customer service jobs have you would you say you've had total? Um, like four. Okay, five. So do you count that um, the gambling and that kind I of thing? I guess that's a yeah. I, I, that, think so. I guess that is a customer service job, and the the casino culture is like a really really odd culture. Ooh, what do you uh, mean? Well, it's it's great because it's also like a melting pot. Like I mean, there there aren't. Th that many white people that are playing these specific types of games, especially because there are a lot of 
like typically Asian games like Pai Gao and Pan Nine. I didn't know that. And the culture of it um, is a very Asian gambling culture where a big part of it is people like to bet on each other's seats. And so at each seat where there's like a circle where you place the dollar for the casino to take for their payment, there are actually six little circles because people like to make bets on other people's seats. And so if you... And even players that aren't even at the table. So every table has like 20 people gathered around it, only six of which have seats. And the other people, you know, it's like it's like one of those old movies where like you're watching the underground, yeah. uh, you know, cockfight. Yeah. And people like just waving bills in the air. So people would throw chips on other people's seats and be like, I want to bet 50 bucks on that seat. I'm saying that that seat will win. Yeah. And for every every bet that was made, they those people would have to give a dollar to the casino. So the casino was just making an insane amount of money. Oh my gosh. Yeah, risk-free. And, you know, the the real the real kick in the teeth of it is that if a player who's not even sitting in your seat makes a larger bet than you're making for yourself on the seat, they actually get to make the decision on the hand. Meaning what? I don't I don't Like if they're playing blackjack, they get to decide whether you hit or stay or split or double down or because whatever. Because they've essentially bet for you because well, they put more well, money down? Because they're they're making a bigger bet. So the, the biggest bet gets to make the decision. Damn. So like, yeah. So like you could be sitting there playing and someone could come over, make a larger bet on your seat and get to decide what happens. Do you? It, but then if you end up winning, do you, you get to keep? Win. You yeah, still do. You still okay. win whatever you bet. This is crazy um, to yeah, me. Yeah, so it's a it's its own culture, and there was a lot of uh, cheating that was attempted. And so, actually, when we were training for the job, like half the training was learning how to spot different types of scams that people pull. Ooh, tell me, tell me. Um, man, I'm trying to think. Well, there's a lot of a lot with card marking. Uh, in a lot of the games, aces are very important cards. Um, in, in both Pi Gao and Blackjack, just off off the top of my head. And so a lot of people try to mark the cards by either like, you know, with their fingernail kind of marking it or, you know, the more like Ocean's Eleven high tech is they would put like an invisible ink on it and be wearing sunglasses so they could see it. Because if you know where the ace is going to be, that'll, that would give you a huge advantage in the hand. And they would try to manipulate the way that the hands are quote unquote randomly determined on which which seats to be put on by there's like a dice shaker. And so they would try to manipulate what numbers would come up on the dice to try get to, out of here. to try to get those cards on a certain seat. Get out of they here. They would also, you know, take the cards off the table. And while they're trying to figure out what to do with their hand, they would like sneak cards in or they what? would sneak cards with other players. Uh-uh. Yeah. So you were trained how to see that. So yeah. did you ever catch it and have to squash yeah. it? Oh yeah, for sure. What would you do? Um, I would, I'd call the floor man over. I'd be, well, it would first come with a warning. I'd be like, Hey floor, can you please let this person know, you know, please keep the cards over the table or, Oh, cause or, they'd like hold them to their chest and you're yeah, like, I know like, something's happening. Like essentially if everyone adheres to what, there are a lot of rules there. And if you adhere to the rules, they're there to thwart people being able to gain an advantage like that. But the thing is our company this, this third-party company that worked there, we had a contract with the casino to be there no matter what, but the players could go wherever they want. So the whenever there was a dispute of any kind, almost always the floor people would side with the customers to keep them happy. And a lot of the floor people were in on it too. The entire thing is super crooked. It's wait, the floor people be in on it? Yeah, like they know that if they let these guys cheat, and then they'll like they'll give them a little bit, you know, outside. I'm telling, there was like so much corruption going on there. Wait, how did you not become bitter? Because then, especially because you were also playing in your free time, wouldn't you well, think I'm playing against I cheaters? Was, I guess I wasn't too bitter because it wasn't my money. It was sure, my company's money. Sure. I mean, but I still wanted to like do my job well because if if a group of players pulled off some kind of scam and and took a lot of our company's money on my watch, like I could have gotten fired. Yeah. So it definitely did behoove me to like try to keep an eagle eye on them. Yeah. I can't, this is a world I like have no frame of right? reference and for. I, and I had no idea until I moved out here and I was talking to a friend um, where I was like, yeah, I'm looking for a job, not sure what to do. I'm, I'm really good at, at games and at gambling games. And, and someone's like, oh yeah, I have a friend out here who like they play blackjack for a living sort of, but they work for a company. And so they ended up putting me in touch with this company. It's like, yeah, who would have thought that something like this ever existed? Well, it's kind of what you yeah. were saying before about how LA has such a strong food culture. LA also has the like most massive weird culture of like jobs. You didn't think could be jobs becoming a job totally. that you make a ton of money on that. You're yeah. like, wait, wait, you do what? Like yeah. it's such a, I mean, God bless necessity is mother of invention and it's expensive out here. So I get yeah. it. Okay. So you said four customer service jobs total of all of the jobs you've had, which mm -hmm. is your favorite comedy. I think I genuinely think comedy is customer service, but also you don't get to use that as the answer for your favorite. Cause obviously mm -hmm. it's your favorite. Yeah. So it's like what, you're an artist, but you're babysitting drunks. Too. Oh, 
thousand percent a thousand percent and you're trying to stay funny and on your game whilst you're crowd managing it's insane um god bless so what was your favorite of all of the customer service jobs you've had favorite oh man um so in 2011 um there was uh in in 2011 i there was a um this big thing where there was essentially a kibosh put on the entire online poker industry um, without getting into too many of the details, of okay. it, uh, essentially the government suddenly cracked down on online poker and everybody's funds were seized. Um, Are you shitting like me? Like worldwide billions of dollars. Yeah, it Ooh, was a crazy thing. Just seized? So, yeah, Can so, they do that? So no, they can. And eventually they ended up unfreezing the funds, but but a couple of the websites didn't have them <laughs> anymore. Like they're supposed to keep them in reserves, like how a bank has to keep a certain percentage. A casino actually needs to keep 100% of what it represents. And these websites are like, oh, we don't actually have it. So, oh, well. And, and now those sites are defunct completely. Well, did people go after them? Like, yo, you took 100,000 like of my US dollars? The, a lot of the websites are based in, you know, in insert random third world country Ooh. here. And, you know, who knows how to get there? So, or where they're based, like, who knows? It's like, it's like trying to go after those 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 scamming those telephone sure you know sure. that are all based in like you know in india or wherever oh and it's like who knows how to get them it's like there's one guy who's a computer tech who knows how to get those people and that's you have to go on a podcast about crime it's a, this is fascinating i want to ask yeah. you so many cia so, questions so and it was on tax day of all days it was on april 15 2011 so overnight i lost um like a lot pretty much all the money to my name and my means of making money are you joking so, wait they took your money too did you ever yeah. get that money back no i never because mine was with one of the sites that didn't Seth, are so, you so bitter so uh i mean it happened to a lot of people and i'm feeling very blessed and i'm okay now and I'm oh you're too positive all right but, fine but, but but that happened th at that time and so i was like oh my god i need a job and so at that time i ended up getting a few customer service jobs simultaneously I, simultaneously i ended up uh getting a job at the cheesecake factory um i got a job catering at this really nice uh this high-end catering company and then a friend of mine who ran karaoke out here um offered me uh one night a week at this um to run karaoke for his business so i don't know the every one of those jobs had kind of its fun weird quirky things and a lot of things that i didn't like about each job so i don't know which i liked the most maybe the catering one because at least we got to kind of be a part of some interesting unusual events like mm -hmm. it's like celebrity weddings and and uh and celebrity kids bar mitzvahs and and things like that so can you say a celebrity wedding you you catered let's see one of the lakers oh that's I cool remember that who was it man kobe she, oh, I, it was like shannon brown was oh, that wow. his name it was oh. like it was like one of the one of the bench players but yeah kobe was there oh wow um, yeah all the yeah all the lakers were there which is kind of fun that was Back, that was like back in 2011 when I first started. Yeah. Okay. And you said each job had something you didn't like about it. What was the thing you didn't like? Like what was the quirky weird shit for each of those jobs that you're like Let's mother? See. So with the catering, the catering was a lot of on the job training. I mean, Ugh. the first day I showed up, I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never, I, I wasn't yet working at Cheesecake, so I didn't have any service experience in that in that fashion. And it was just like kind of jumping on a running train. And it's like a lot of just manual labor with like setting up and taking down. And then, and during the event itself, you're doing all this manual labor, but you still have to have this like air Smile. of, you know, yeah, exactly. Can't be sweating. Um, so that was, that was kind of tough and kind of just kind of not knowing at each event what it was going to entail. I got hired at one event for a guacamole competition, which was out there in Carpen. Is it Carpen Carpenteria? Carpenteria. Yeah, that's up yeah. by Santa Barbara. Right. And so I got out there, didn't know what I was going to do. And I had just recently gotten my bartending license. Okay. Um, but I, I hadn't yet done any bartending like in the real world, but I get up there and, and the person running the event was like, so you have your bartending license, right? I'm like, well, yeah, I recently got it. And they're like, okay, you're going to be the bartender tonight. Which, to be put on this event, which meant having to make hundreds and hundreds of margaritas throughout just the night. pure margaritas all yeah, night. Yeah, just pure margaritas. And like, I had never set up a bar before on my own. I hadn't, I hadn't kept up with it. I didn't know how to work the blender. And of course, everyone wanted a blended one because it was like a super hot day. Of course. But I ended up making some like bomb ass margaritas all day long. Did so you? it was like a big hit of it. Yeah, including who was there? Oh, Alan Thick showed up, and he had a uh, he had a toothpick in his mouth the entire time, and he kept being like, "This is a great margarita." I don't know what you did with this, but this is really good. You sound like him. Yeah. He has a very swallowy kind of. Yeah, oh he no, does. Like, yeah. Um, 
So that was that was a pretty hairy experience. Wait, it was a guacamole competition though. What the fuck does that mean? I, I it was couldn't a tell me national guacamole competition. So all the finalists were at this place. What I would pay to I go know. there right now. Sounds amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And so a bunch of rich muckety mucks get together to judge other people's guacamole. <laughs> so that you didn't like that you were just like it was OTJ. It was like you better get out here and sort it out. Uh, yeah, I never too much pressure. Yeah, I never liked not knowing what was going to happen and and for how long we were going to be there. Like, uh, I mean, the the money was kind of good when you got into that OT territory and then double OT. But there were some events there. You were there for like 20 hours. Come on. It was crazy. And we weren't allowed to have our cell phones on us at all. So my wife was always like very worried about where I was. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, so you're doing that. So that's the, the one you don't, that's what you didn't like about catering. What did, yeah. what was quirky and weird about being carried? Were you the karaoke host? Yeah. Yeah. I was the KJ and Ooh. it was, I don't want to mention the bar cause I want to, I don't want to put them down, but it's, it was like a very deep Valley bar. Okay. Got it. And they had a great venue for music. They had like this huge stage area and then a separate bar area. Um, and karaoke in LA is pretty great. Like yes. I was, I, I was a bit of a karaoke whore, like throughout my twenties and early thirties, like my friends and I, we love it. And there are like great singers in LA and like, it's fun to go where like people are really great at it. But this place Monday night was karaoke night, but people didn't show up for it. It was the same like five barflies who were there every night of their life. Aww. And it was their night to do karaoke. So one by one, I'd be in this huge venue for bands and I would call them in from the bar in the other room be like, all right, it's such and such as turn. And then they'd come in and they'd, uh, would they and, crush? Could they and, actually sing? No, no, they were terrible. <laughs> and they would sing their song and for no one, you know, Aww. and except me standing on the side with the laptop and then they'd go back into the bar and I'm, I'm not very tech savvy at all. I'm like minimally just, you know, barely layman, uh, experience. And so I didn't really know what I was doing with like setting the stuff up. I mean, I was doing it by rote from how my friend who ran it showed me how to do it. <sighs> but anytime something went wrong and the sound system was like, had a lot of issues and anytime there was an issue like i had to call him up and hope that he was free to come out and fix it and um and the tips were like pretty lousy well because no one was there right no one was there but that was it was a very bizarre type of spot we had a we had a, a guy who was hearing impaired who was who, one who was one of the five regulars and was able to sing and like knew. yeah i mean wow singing okay. quotes but yeah sure it, it was great yeah he always did the same songs he always did like well he did he liked to do a lot of raps of course, because so patter. The, yeah, yeah, but he always used to do, oh God, what was it? He used to do, um, oh, don't the damn there but to move. Or yeah, I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. It's so interesting that he would be able to get the the pattern. That's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so you, so that was quirky about that. So the, the, if if there would have been more people, you would have enjoyed it more. Yeah, that could have been a blast. Okay. a lot of fun. How long did you do that, Tom? Eight months. Oof, you lasted a while. And then I did the catering for like a couple years and then... The third one, the big in. The big in. Uh, I worked at the Cheesecake Factory at the Grove for Ooh. six, for six glorious, glorious years. People who do not live in LA don't realize that that location. That's the busiest Cheesecake Factory I've ever been inside of. It's the second busiest one there is. The busiest is apparently in Honolulu. Okay. Um, and then I, the Grove is the second busiest. I've never been able to go in there and not be put on a wait. It's Doesn't a matter two and what a half time hour it, wait. Minimum on Saturday night. Yeah, and like I went, I was there on a random Sunday, like middle of the day, like past brunch, yeah. still put on a wait. And like it's crazy. They don't take reservations. Nope. Either. You yeah. you roll up and there's always a line. Okay, so. Cheesecake Factory has come up on this podcast or on the show a lot <laughs> yeah. because the thing that I can't understand is you have a, a 47 page menu. Mm-hmm. So that means in the back at any given moment, the food is ready to be made for 6,000 different menu items. Yeah, it's crazy. You got to tell me how many cooks, how many prep people, like how does that work? They, um, it's a pretty big kitchen and then there are like different stations in the kitchen. So there are certain cooks that are just in the pasta area, certain cooks that are just in the pizza area and the oven area. So that's, that's kind of how they do it. Um, but a lot of the items look alike. And, and so it was a two week long training process. That's it. That's shocking. Yeah. And even in just that two weeks, I probably put on like five pounds because you got to try everything because yeah, at the end of each of each, you know, several hours, they would bring out a dozen different items so that by the end of the couple of weeks, you've tried everything, everything on the menu, pretty much. What was that menu test like? Was that a nightmare? Uh, It was pretty tough. And, and I think I was 
I like my anxiety was really high when doing it. And, and it actually took me a couple of tries to get certified where, because like the first part of the test is where like you're shadowing somebody else and then you have to kind of do your own, uh, where they're with you and you're, so it's like you're doing it together and then you have to do a shift on your own. And the first time I did it, I like just barely failed because you have to get a certain amount of points and I came right underneath it. And I'm like, oh my God, am I going to actually not get this job? Because after, you know, two <laughs> 17 years of training, yeah. like, and, um, but then like the next time I did it, I got certified, but, but it took a while to get good at the job. It, it took a while to get that skill of, of like that sense of inner timing of of putting things in the computer and knowing when they're going to come up. Oh, you would have to do that kind of stuff too. Yeah, well, they they have food runners whose sole job it is is to bring the food to the tables, but the place is so busy that you also have to help run food. Not not your own, just like whenever just things it. are ready. So there is no off time. You are constantly going. And as soon as you've put the... So being able to balance all that you have to do and still be helpful enough to help run food, to help keep certain areas clean. Um, yeah, I mean, I still get server nightmares probably once a week. We talk about this all the time. There's no such thing as a server dream. Hi, Chris Plack, and I'm quoting you. There's only server nightmares. Yeah, you I, never have that one where you get a $500 tip. Right, and you that never happens. It. No, never. once a week I have, and it's the same nightmare where I've been, where I still work for the company for some reason, and I get sent to another location because they're short for the night, <gasps> which never happened. It before. didn't. No, no, but this is, so just in the dream, I go to another location. I have no idea how to use the computer program, the oh, posi. I don't know how... I don't know like where to get anything. I don't know where my section is and oh, the table numbers. And then, but what's great is that it's like there's certain clues when you learn about lucid dreaming that you're supposed to look for to make you realize that you're dreaming and then you can do whatever you want. So at some point in the dream, when I'm starting to get, you know, get 10 sat and suddenly I go, oh, wait a minute, I don't work here anymore. And then, you know, I give everyone the middle finger and fly, out. Out, fly out the window. And <laughs> do you really control your lucid dreaming? This is a whole different podcast, but yeah. I, so, do you really? That's amazing. Uh, to a certain extent. That's awesome. I have a thing where um, if I realize too much that I'm lucidly dreaming, then I wake up. Wake up. Okay. Yeah. So you do that for six years. You must have been making a grip of money there for how busy it was. Was um, it turn and burn? For, yes. For how busy it was, the average tip was somewhat low because that area they're very high on on tourists it's, yeah it's very very touristy yeah and um you know there just aren't the same uh tipping standards in other areas of the country let alone the world yeah where they're the tipping standard is zero so we would have <laughs> you know a lot of foreign customers that just wouldn't know and and they'd uh you know, they'd be like, service was really wonderful thank you and leave absolutely nothing and you're like great of course you do. get you know the occasional uh, someone leaves you zero, but they write, but excellent but I'm job. Gonna, or they leave one of those cards that that's like to see Jesus save. loves you. Yeah. Jesus loves you. And so, so you're welcome. I'm saving your soul today, which is so much better than, than the $5 I should than, have given you. Yeah. So let your landlord know that you can pay, pay with, with Jesus's with Jesus love. hugs. Uh, yeah, that's great. Okay. So you were, so you train there forever. You start, but, but you're making money just because of the volume. Mm -hmm. Did you ever get like, was your best tip ever that you got at any of these jobs at the cheesecake factory? Like, did you have somebody throw down crazy? Cause sometimes celebrities sure. go to that location. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know what I served, uh, I served David Spade a lot. Did you, he's the sweetest. He's I've a really sweet too. guy. He's a nice dude. Yeah. Yeah. I served David Spade a lot. Um, and so he would always leave really nice tip and he would yeah, always get the generous. same thing. He'd get the white chicken chili with a double helping of uh, brown rice. Oh, yeah. He's a healthy guy. Healthy guy. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. great. So, so you knew that there would be some, that's interesting that a location that busy would have regulars because he must've been recognized. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, so sometimes I guess they do that for that reason. Um, but did you, so was there, did you ever get a best tip ever there apart from David? Best tip ever? Yeah. Um, you know, the occasional just bomb ass tip for like maybe 50 or 60 bucks or something nice. on a few hundred dollars. And it, it would usually be a celebrity. What was the best um, tip you've ever gotten in your life? Probably something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe someone hooked me up with a $100 tip one time. Okay. Yeah. Now, the question I know I'm going to get asked if I don't ask you. So you became certified in bartending in one of the most competitive bartending markets in the world. Yeah. You got bumped up to be a bartender immediately, so you were getting experience. Why not try to bartend at Cheesecake or bartend at any of these places? Oh, totally. Um, well, the why not at Cheesecake is because those bartending positions at Cheesecake are like really, really coveted. And so they only give those to servers who had been there for a long time and were like the top servers. Yeah, so that's that's mainly why. And I think 
so I, I didn't I didn't want to pursue that. Same reason why when I was working that casino job, towards the end of that job, they were offering me a uh, a route to become a supervisor, and I was just like, you know what, I don't want to get I more don't in get this locked into yes. this more yes. so than I already am. Like I'm trying to keep keep my head on my shoulders and remind myself this I'm, ain't it. I'm doing this so that yes. I don't have to do it someday. Yes. And I got. I don't want to make a career out of this. I got asked to manage at the last place I worked and I was like, out, no way. Cause I watched it. The other two managers at the time were both, you know, former actors mm-hmm. and I watched it crush their souls as they're, you know, of course everyone's kissing their ass cause they're at a higher position at this place. Mm-hmm. But also I watched it just crush them. And I looked at both of them and I was like, thank you so much. No way. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, so you work at cheesecake. What was a quirky thing? Like say I'm on page 72 of the menu mm-hmm. and i'm like this is a random cheesecake that behind be, that would be pastas yeah go on it's <laughs> <That's> amazing <laughs> yeah, so, I, know, I, know, I got you i would i would run with it so if i'm looking at like a random cheesecake and i'm like uh the snickers bar cheesecake mm-hmm. but i look to you and i'm like are there any allergens in that would mm-hmm. you have to be like well it's you know it's a lactose base it's got milk it's, it's got, got nuts. it's yeah. got nut. yeah like mm-hmm. would you have to know that for every single also type of cheesecake y'all carried um for a lot of well, I yes, but if someone had an allergy, the safe thing to do would be to go back into the kitchen and talk to the chef, the, the chef along the line, and say. And and a lot of times they didn't know offhand either, because like there could be an ingredient in one of the four sauces that's in a Jeez. dish, and so we'd have to look it up on a computer and see if it had gluten or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like the smart way to to do it instead of just saying to the guest, like I'd always say to the guest, I don't think there is that in that, but let me go check for you. Which always makes, as someone who has allergies, that mm. actually makes me feel better. If the person's like, I'm not going to just say yes or no, I'm actually going to go check. Like, yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you do that for six years. What was the last straw that got you out of working at the Cheesecake Factory? So last straw that got me out of it was that over the last year plus uh, working there, they renovated the restaurant and expanded it to include a balcony area that's connected to it um, where you can actually look out into the movie theater that's yeah. next door to it. Yeah. And... That balcony area used to be actually our break area. So now we didn't have a break area and they opened up the restaurant to another dozen, 15 tables or so, but they didn't expand the number of servers, the number of bartenders. Y'all just had to pick up. The kitchen. So now we were already work. we had already been working at an impossibly busy rate and this made it and this made it impossible. It made it, and and I'll bet if you go on Yelp around this time and look afterward, you will see that there is a significant increase in negative review, reviews and service. A lot of which say, you know, I can tell that it wasn't my server's fault, but they really are just understaffed here, and the quality of service went down. But you know what? Some big uh, corporate bigwigs, some, some corporate bigwigs, crunched some numbers and saw that even if the average customer was was this much less happy, they're still coming. They still brought more customers in and made that much more money. And uh, wait, so they wouldn't have assigned those extra twelve tables to a server? They were just like, you guys go pick up outside. Well, no, they would. So they would bring a couple, like I think two servers on to service this entire section where they maybe should have had three. But like I said, they didn't expand the. So the average wait times for food were going up really long. Uh, you know the and the the times where like. a a whole table's food was ready except for one person. And then they have to deal with the awkwardness of like, well, do we start or do we wait for this one person? And then that one's person, one person's food doesn't get run until like 10 minutes later. later. And so everyone else's food is dead. And the question, and one of our rules for running food was don't run food to a table unless the whole table's ticket is uh, done. Ticket is ready. Yeah. But a lot of times there would be one thing waiting and the, and the kitchen would be like, just get it the fuck out the window. Yeah. With faith that by the time we, set all that food that it would be ready and a lot of times it wasn't so we had a lot of comps that's the thing so i'm sure we ended up giving up a lot of money in in all the comps that we had to give out but cheesecake doesn't care about that which reminds me of an amazing story do you want to hear this yes. story so speaking of of them just throwing out comps uh, one time I was working a shift and my manager came up to me and said, okay, in about a half hour you're going to get a customer that is going to order 10 shrimp for $10 I'm like, we don't have 10 shrimp for $10. That's not a thing on our menu. He goes, I know. He goes, I'm going to show you how to ring it in. You're going to say yes, and um, and I'll show you how to ring it in once he gets here. I'm like, what's it? He goes, I'll explain later. So this guy, he was there on a date, and he's like, and uh, and I would like your uh, your 10 shrimp for $10, please. And I was like, yes, sir, right away. 
and I, I put the order in, uh, manager showed me how afterward I'm like, okay, dude, what's, what's, what's going up? on here? And he said, so here's the thing. This guy went to some cheesecake factory like a couple of years ago and ordered 10 shrimp for $10 and, um, they, they gave it to him. They just, they just acquiesced to this request, even though it doesn't exist. I go, okay. And he goes, anyway, a few months later, this guy went to another cheesecake factory, tried to order the same thing. They said to him, sorry, sir, we don't have that. He made a huge stink. He wrote to corporate. And so corporate wrote him back, apologized, and sent him a $50 gift card. Anyway, he did this again a few months later at some other cheesecake. Same thing happened. They rejected it. He got pissed. He wrote to them. They sent him an, an apology and another $50 gift card. So he goes, so every... Am I allowed to swear? Absolutely. So go. He's like, so every time... This guy orders tension for ten dollars, and we don't give it to him. This He's asshole get, gets fifty bucks. gets fifty dollars from our company, so it's it's Easier. it's more cost efficient. And oh I and I said to my manager, I go, does it bother you that we work for a company that has no spine? And he's like, you know what, man? He goes, I honestly think that the way that that they look at it is is uh, you know we're making a lot of money, so let's just not rock the boat. I'm like, all right, I get it. You know, I, I feel a little bad that like I'm making it like all about cheesecake because I have to imagine that like all the other, you know, that like Chili's and Applebee's are all like this as well on Fridays. Like, well, yeah, I got to think it is. Yeah. And I mean, I, the reason I'm so focused on it is because I've brought up the just from the kitchen's perspective, the sheer volume and mm -hmm. how they don't like the turnover in that kitchen must be every other week. I mean, I just I can't imagine the yeah. pacing of that. Yeah. So there was that. And, and I and so conditions were getting worse and I kind of put it out there to a lot of the servers who, I mean, our other main job is complaining, right? And so <laughs> I put it out to them like, guys, I'm, I'm not saying we go on strike, but like- This is crazy. We, we need to band together. We need to talk about ideas. Let's do something. And there was like some interest. And so I reached out to a lot of the servers. I'm like, all right, we're going to get together at this place at this time and let's just talk about it. And then somehow like this got back to the managers of like, hey, we, you know, we hear that there's like- A coup. A, a coup happening. <laughs> I'm like, that's not what's happening. We want to talk about that the conditions are getting impossible for us to do our job and we just want to figure out some solutions. And- you know, so the managers were already getting kind of wary of me. I'm like, look, I'm not trying to Che Guevara this shit here. Like, yeah. just, I really want to be constructive and, and find find some ideas. And then um, the day came where all the servers, we were all going to get together and only uh, one guy showed up. And it was at that day where I was like, oh, okay, the, no one actually gives a shit, gives okay. a shit either. Um, and this was also coming off the tail end of, of I also got mugged Ooh. Uh, my third year at the job, uh, two days before Christmas. And um, the parking at the uh, at the Grove, is it's pretty expensive. Yeah. And if you work there, they have a quote unquote employee rate of, I think f at the time it was $14 a day, which like I know in, in, in LA, right. In LA, sure, whatever. Like you drop 20 at a parking garage. But it adds up, and yeah. you know, for a lot of a lot of the employees, that would have been like an hourly wage. So can you imagine just one of your hours is just for the privilege of parking there? So I used to park at the neighborhood that was just outside of the Grove, uh, just north of Beverly, which is it's a not a bad area. It's not a bad area, and so I par I would park there every day, and then I'd walk over, and then uh, two nights before Christmas, and I had my biggest shift ever. I made like two eighty or something like that. And I walked back to my car and these three dudes oh. jumped me and took my phone and 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 took my wad of cash. And thank God they didn't take my backpack because like I had all my stand-up material. Oh, that's more valuable. That's yeah. true. I was just like, please, that's it, guys. Yeah, they held me at knife point and <sighs> kind of threw me around and and uh, you know, whatever. I feel fortunate that I didn't get hurt or anything. But Anyway, I, I had talked to my, I don't want to get him in trouble because I don't think this is his fault at all, but my general manager at the time about it. And I'm like, look, you know, I, like it's just too much for parking. Like, why are we paying? You know, the people who work at the Apple store apparently don't pay for parking. So let's figure this out. Because Apple is probably supplementing the And payment. my general manager is like, he goes, you know what? He goes, I'm I'm somewhat close with the guy who owns the Grove. His name is Rick, Rick Caruso. Caruso. <laughs> I know. How, like, how apropos that we're yeah. talking about this. And he goes, I'm actually having lunch with him next week, and I'm going to talk to him about this and see what we can do. And a week later, he came back, and he's like, sorry, Tough man. titties. He goes, nah. tough titties. Yeah. Uh, he said, it's like, it's not enough for this guy to make all the fucking money in the world. Nope. But he needs to take $14 from the employees that are helping the Grove make run. Money. Which... Mm -hmm. 
Like I, I, this makes me a single issue voter, but for this reason alone yeah. is why I'm not going to vote for him. There's a lot of people that aren't for the, for very similar. I mean, yeah. like the unhoused crisis. Because anyway. here's the crazy thing. I crunched the numbers and I realized that if I pay $14 a day for how, how many shifts I was working, I would have, I was still better off parking in the neighborhood across the street and getting, and mugged. getting mugged a mm-hmm. few times a year yep. and I would still be saving money. And it was that day where I'm like, I, I got to get out of this place. And at that time, um, I had been married for a year. My wife and I were house shopping and we were looking at the valley. And I'm like, you know what? Once we find this house in the valley, I'm not going to want to make this drive every day no. back down into Hollywood. Yeah. So that was a good opportunity to do it. Good. So put in my two weeks. You're like I am in the way that like you want to, you know, even though the Cheesecake Factory wasn't goals, you're like, but I'm going to go hard for this because this is the job I'm doing right now. So mm. I'm trying to make conditions more tolerable. We are the people that suffer at these jobs because we're like, no, we can all do it together. And everyone else is like, yeah, fuck off. We don't care. Yeah. And it's, yeah. yeah. Like look, look through history. Anyone who tries to like disrupt the system, yeah. like what happens to them yeah. yeah okay well um, yes i'm comparing myself to jesus and gandhi no and question and right it's now. good you should um okay i want to get okay we're running out of time so i just want to know uh what was there an incident that ever made them ask to speak to your manager so they escalated something that they weren't having handled by you no wow but okay there was there was uh i you know i don't know why i'm thinking of this incident but there was one time where i was i was serving a black couple and they were it sounds like I'm about to say something racist. I'm totally not. I know you're not. Anyway, I wasn't able to help them right away, and and I was like totally in the weeds, and and they had said something to me like they go like they were like, is there a reason why? Because they they had observed incorrectly that I had served a table Everyone. next to them, even though that table next to them had gotten sat after. This was not the case at all. But anyway, they were like, is they're like, are we going to have a problem today? Is there like a, a certain issue here? And like you know, like it's like totally like ramped up all my white guilt and i'm like oh my god no so please sorry. No, no i'm no. an ally <laughs> yeah yeah just like kowtowing for Wait, but apologizing they, uh, for 400 years of slavery in that moment no i'm problem. like please I, uh. you're a good jew yeah but that's what i okay so you say to them no there's not a problem i'm really sorry mm-hmm. like but how did that how did that twist into positive they were like okay cool we're good i said to them i'm like I, i'm really sorry if if it looked like that i'm gonna take care of you guys right away you have to understand i'm like backed up right now with three tables and it's an issue. I like, uh, honestly, I remember saying this now, God, I hadn't thought about this in a while, but the last year of my job, because of how we had expanded, I told people when they said, what do you do for work? I go, I'm a professional apologizer because most of my tables, something would go wrong because of the, because of the situation. And I was just apologizing nonstop. I'd apologize when people first said, would sit down. I go, just just heads up. I'm sorry. We're really backed up right now. I'm going to do my absolute best, but our, our kitchen's kind of slammed right now. So Lord. things will take a little longer than, than they should. And when you care, that's brutal. Yeah. It's brutal. I hated that working at a comedy club where people would be like, we've been waiting forever. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, you have, I know you have, yeah. and I can't do this any faster than I'm doing it. Oh, it's brutal. Okay. Last question, question in this section. Well, two questions in this section. Do you tip? Yeah. What's your average? Of average. Uh, I usually do between uh, I usually do 20% of the post-tax amount. Okay. And can I, can people earn less because they were shitty to you or do you mostly just keep it? So one of the great lessons that I learned in in waiting tables is that in the vast majority is, sorry, is that when something goes wrong, it's really, really hard to know whether or not it was the server or if it was something else going on That's at right. the restaurant. Yeah. And so I think in the very few times that I have left less than that as a tip are very specific things where I knew for certain it was the server. that it was something that the server had done. But but it in all but there have been a lot of those experiences and in the majority of those experiences I'm like, but like I don't know what's going on with them. Like they could just be having a bad day and this and that. So it would have to be something that was like so egregious that I'm like you know what? I don't care if you're having a bad day. You you didn't have to be like an asshole like That's this right. and, and this and that. But but I won't like stiff. It's like yeah. I'll I'll do like fifteen percent instead. I love how all servers who I have on the on the show are like all of us consider fifteen percent stiffing you. Yeah, like if we're I giving know, you right? that, yeah. it's basically we gave you nothing. Okay. Yeah. And then last question in this section: <laughs> Can you describe either the worst customer interaction you've had or top to bottom who the archetype of the worst would be? He's shaking his head. Um, <laughs> It's it's a thousand way tie for worst customer, right? It it's really crazy. is. We had one guy who 
you know, he was a sweet guy, but he would show up and he would sit there for hours and hours and only order. Um, he had like some super OCD ways of ordering his food he would get like the southwest egg rolls but he had to have them super well done and he had to have the sauces that came with them set up on the plate in a certain way oh wow Um, he always got an he would get a an iced tea a passion fruit iced tea no ice filled to the top a second one halfway filled and then two separate glasses Glasses of of ice. ice um he had like a lot of things like that and he would sit there for three or four hours so that's what he tip um, yeah, he would, I mean, he'd tip like a couple bucks on his, on his $17 tab. But that's not proportionate to the amount of time he was right. seated there. So, so when you see this guy sit in your section, you go, oh, there goes 25% of the money that I was going to make today. Oh, Cause we would usually have like a four, four table hour, section. Yeah. And a four hour f- shift. Yeah. Oh God. That's brutal. Yeah. Um, I had a group of, uh, 15 people show up on New Year's Eve the second year I was there, which is why I, I decided after that night I would never work in New Year's Eve again if I could help it. Um, they got There was a champagne, like a free champagne yeah. toast that we would do at midnight. Which are fucking brutal. I wish everybody yeah. knew how brutal those yeah. actually are. And so they just showed, they showed up at like 8 or 8.30 and they just camped there until midnight to get their free champagne. I think they got maybe two pieces of cheesecake and they probably got about 10 hot tea setups, which are a real pain in the ass yep. to do. Tea's brutal. Especially when you're you're really busy. In the weeds, yep. And so this, but because it was a party of 15, it was essentially my whole section. Oh. So I wasn't busy all night. I had nothing to do, but that was my entire night was was 10 hot tea setups and a couple of pieces of cheesecake. So would you make like five bucks off the table or something? Oh, yeah, maybe. Oh, it's so brutal. Y'all, brutal. Don't, don't park. Don't park. It's, it's got, not like... Um, I got completely stiff one time on, on a $450 tab. No, you didn't. Why couldn't you grab that? a party of 14. Oh man. Gratting was like, Oh, that was a whole other nightmare with our company where we tried to push to have the auto grat got taken off at some point. There was a law that got passed like yeah. halfway in my time there that, that deemed it unlawful to, to auto grat. And so we, it, um, you know, yeah, it got taken off and, and then like we had to fight for a long time to just have the suggestion printed off, you know, that says this is what 18% is. This, this is, is what 20, yeah. Um, oh, that was, oh God, it's like you're taking me back now. I'm getting ma- major PTSD with with like the battles that we fought to just have that put on. Wait, so they stiffed you on $450? Yeah, yeah. So what, what were they rude? Were they foreign? Was there some reason? No. Don't make me. Oh yeah, don't say it. Okay, don't make fine. me say it. Okay. That sucks. Yeah. That sucks a lot. So you yeah. couldn't auto grad them. And so they walk out. And so did you have to, did yeah. you tip out based off of sales or based off yeah. of tips? <gasps> yeah. So you lost money on that table. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I had a, I had a few, I had a few dining dashes in my day. People think that's so cute and it is so yeah. not I had these cute. two teenage girls one time dine and dash. And what was so crazy is this was in my first year there. And I was so naive that I went to go box their leftovers up and they were, um, and and they were like walking out and I come out with my their leftovers and they were going down the stairs. And I wanted to be like good Samaritan hero of the day. So I chased them out of the restaurant to give them their leftovers. And they looked like, you know, totally Scared. like the cat that caught the bird. The canary. Whatever, the canary. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, thanks. I'm like, yeah, yeah. You almost forgot your leftovers. Got back to the table and saw, of course, that uh, there was no cash or, or anything in the wow. Would you guys be responsible? Was there a policy that you had to cover the tab? No, we didn't, but we did get written up for it. That's so fucking shitty because you're not a security guard. You're a server. And and the couple times that it happened, the managers that had to, that sat me down and had to like talk to me about it. Like they felt bad about it. You know, like they, they really, they really phoned it in and they're like, you realize and this and that, and you understand we have to write you up. I'm like, yeah, just fucking just do, do it. it. Just do it. Ugh. Okay. Well, because we're running out of time, I just want to, we, uh, we're going on to the good stuff. We hope you saved room for dessert. We're going to only ask two questions in this. So what's the best lesson you have personally learned from working in customer service? <sighs> Man, the, the two lessons, the one is about, about that I had mentioned about tipping that, that, that like, you just don't know if it's the server's fault or not. And also that other people rely on those tips. That's right. Like the busters, the bartenders, the food runners, they all rely on it. So like, if you're going to not tip, you're kind of taking away from all of that. Um, and the other lesson, which is like really kind of sad is like, 
in general, it really lowered my opinion of humanity. (laughs) (laughs) You're not the only one, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks. Okay. And what's one piece of advice you would give to customers who interact with customer service workers? Um, please give the benefit of the doubt. Mm, I love that. No one's ever said that before. I love that. Okay. Well, Seth, how can people get in touch with you? Where are you touring next? Do you want to give out your socials? Like, yeah, I'll give out my socials. Uh, currently in the process of, of booking some new dates. So please follow me on the socials and I'll post about all of it. So on Twitter, I'm at Seth Shapiro. And on Instagram, I'm at the Seth Shapiro. Oh, I'm BK Gaffney. That's funny. Right. Yeah. If someone steals your name, it's a, it's that's a right. little it's hack. Like, well, I'm going to have to just throw a V on there. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, folks, we're going to drop your checks now. If you want to help us out here at Service from Hell, we'd love to have you subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you're listening. It will help us reach us. It will help us reach more people that need to be schooled on the art of being kind. It will be catharsis for those of us still working in the industry. If you want to get in touch with us here directly at Service from Hell, send us your receipts to Service from Hell Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, if you can't afford a tip, you can't afford to go out. So don't be garbage and be good to people. It's easier that way. Seth, thank you for your time. I know you're a busy human, new dad running around also being a comic. So really glad that you were here. Thanks for all your sharing. And I'm certain I'm going to get emails about more cheesecake stories. So we, we may have to bring you back, but thank you folks so much for listening. Good night. Thank you.